Good morning. Let's stand and read God's Word together this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 10. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, have your way in us. And everyone said... You may be seated. All right. Have you ever seen those games online? They're quizzes, and they're, they say, who said this, Joel Osteen or a fortune cookie? You ever taken that one? There's other ones like, who said this, Lady Gaga or Shakespeare? It's true, and they're kind of fun and surprising. Well, you know, if I took this verse out of context, we could play a game, who said this, Muhammad or Jesus, Right? Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword, right? I mean, the church lady would clutch her pearls and say, Oh, Jesus would never say that. He came to bring love and peace to everybody. That's what the angels sang at Christmas. Peace on earth. No, Muhammad said that. But no, it's Jesus. And you've probably seen atheists or Muslims use this passage or ones like it to try and make Jesus sound like he's a violent maniac, like Muhammad was. Did Jesus ever strike anyone with a sword? Did Jesus ever command anyone to kill in his name? No. In fact, we see Jesus rebuke Peter for trying to violently stop his arrest in Gethsemane and heal the ear of the temple guard that Peter had injured. One of the royal titles of Jesus is Prince of Peace. So what is the nature of this conflict Jesus is referring to, and and what is the sword that he brought? And how could our dear, sweet, peace-loving Jesus ever promote conflict in our families? All right, well, let's take a look. What you might not know is the sword was associated with Jesus almost from birth. Mary and Joseph took the newborn baby to the temple for circumcision and had an encounter with a man named Simeon. Simeon was an elderly man. He lived in Jerusalem. And Luke records he was a man of prayer, a righteous man, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And this old man had such such a close relationship with the Holy Spirit. He was made to know that he would see Messiah before he died. And on the very day that Mary and Joseph are carrying the infant Jesus into the temple to be dedicated, Simeon 
was led by the Spirit to go to temple. And he knew immediately who he was seeing when he saw baby Jesus. He asked Mary and Joseph if he could bless the baby. And here we see a part of of what was spoken by the godly man concerning Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. Luke records he blessed both of them and specifies what he said to Mary, and a sword will pierce your soul as well. The headline of the newspaper that God dropped on Simeon's doorstep that morning was, This Changes Everything. By revelation of the Spirit, Simeon not only correctly identified the baby Jesus as Messiah, but he also saw Jesus was going to change everything. The nation would never be the same. Those who thought they were in control would come to find out that they weren't. And those people who thought they were were nobodies would come to realize God was calling them to be leaders. Jesus was going to shake things up so much, it would be as if a sword was going to cut away all the games and all the corrupt politics and all the masks that people wear and expose the hearts of everyone. Simeon made it clear that even Mary, Jesus' own mother, would not be exempt from the work that Jesus had come to do. And so when we ask, well, what is the sword? Well, the first answer is, It's Jesus himself. He will cause a division in the Jewish faith and leadership. And don't we see this now? Isn't faith in Jesus in America today considered to be intolerant? But what is the sword has another answer. It speaks to the eternal nature of God the Son. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Paul identifies God's word as a spiritual sword. Hebrews chapter 4, for the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. Now, the two-edged sword that Paul was referring to is called the gladius. Looked something like this, okay? It was made like that cut going in, cut coming out. It cut every which way that you pointed it, right? In any direction. And with Paul making this comparison, he's saying the Word of God is piercing, it's penetrating. The Word of God reaches into the heart, the center of the action, and lays open the motives and feelings of everyone that it touches. It exposes all of our innermost thoughts and desires. A few weeks back, I went ocean fishing. It was fun and humbling, and I'm going to save that story for another time, but let's fast forward to me at home preparing to cook some amazing cuts of fish, but they needed to be deboned, right? I did not have the right knife. I had never deboned a fish. You want to guess how that went? The result was I lost a lot of meat that I couldn't get off the bone. The second time, then I researched what's the right way to debone a fish, but I still didn't have the right knife, so the fish wasn't quite so mangled as the first time, but still I lost some good meat because I didn't have the right tool. God has perfect knowledge and the perfect tool. 
He can cut right through our outward appearance into our inner attitude. He knows right where our faith ends and our unbelief begins. And that is one of the main purposes of the sword that Jesus brings. It separates. He can separate the words we say from the intentions behind them. And like a neurosurgeon, God makes the most subtle and delicate separations even in the sensitive areas of our lives. Sometimes even we can't tell the difference, right? We think our intentions and our attitudes are in line, but then the Word of God comes in and exposes us. We think we're doing something to serve God, but then when we aren't appreciated for it, well, then we get all twisted, right? And then the Holy Spirit quietly whispers, you weren't serving me. You were pretending to serve me, but what you really wanted to do was exalt yourself. Say amen or ouch, somebody. Haven't we all been there? We've all been there, right? It cuts, but we need it. The sword of Jesus creates other separations too. Before the church, before the Bible, before the laws of Moses, God created marriage. It was an original creation of his. And even before there was such a thing as families, Adam foresaw that the holy union of marriage between a man and a woman would alter other longer-standing relationships. So even though Adam did not have parents, upon meeting Eve for the first time, what does he say? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Basically, Adam was saying, whew, I don't have a mom and dad, but baby, if I did, I would totally leave them for you. That's what he was saying. So everybody here who is married has experienced what Adam was talking about. Do our parents cease to be our parents when we get married? No. The command to honor them still stands. It's not that there's shunning or anything disrespectful justified just because you got married. Absolutely not. But there is, or should be, a definitive change in the relationship. Externally, your address changes. Right? Right? Okay. I mean, did anyone propose to your fiancé and say, oh, baby, we're going to be so happy living in my room in my parents' house? No, you did not say that. Please, you did not say that. Internally... There's a shift in the dynamic because now your relationship with your spouse takes priority over other family, right? You discuss things with your spouse first. The needs and perspectives of your spouse are foremost in your mind. Marriages where one or both keep running back to mommy and daddy wind up in conflict and drama. Why? Because they are not in step with the words of Adam, which were corroborated by Jesus. So it's no surprise that in several places in the Old and New Testament, God uses this image of a husband and wife to help us understand a truth about our relationship with him. God presents himself to us for an exclusive relationship. He plainly says, I want first place. No one before me. Have you ever been in a situation where two married people were bickering and arguing in public? Awkward. And that is exactly what happens when you step out of alignment with God because you start to value your opinions and your ideas and your time and your whatever before God. 
And God doesn't want any daylight between you and him. Words that describe a healthy relationship. Maybe you have thought of this. But have you ever thought words that describe a healthy relationship are also musical words? When two people are in unison, they have great strength and power and unity. When two people are in harmony with each other, they're still singing the same song, but their different perspectives complement the other one as they reach the same goal. But a marriage in discord, it's like two people with two radios blasting two different songs. It's a mess. Acknowledging Jesus for who he is, the king and Lord of all things. It's more than agreeing to a theological idea. Your confession is worthless without the truth of it changing your heart, changing the way you live, the way you make decisions, the way you interact with people. Your confession is worthless until you go and pick up that newspaper that God dropped at your doorstep like he did to Simeon that says, this changes everything. When we become one with Jesus, we become separated because everything's changed in our lives. Some close friends and family start to feel excluded. Conflicts erupt. Parents are going to challenge you attending church instead of going off with them on the weekends. Friends are going to challenge you on why you don't come and party with them anymore. Your spouse is going to challenge you when you try to give money to the church. And on and on and on the conflicts arise because of Jesus. St. Augustine said, say to your parents, I will love you in Christ, not instead of Christ. You will be with me in him, but I will not be with you without him. When the disciples answered the call to follow Jesus, they were making a decision to be with Jesus. And being with Jesus wherever he went simultaneously meant they were not in a thousand other places that they might have been had they never followed Jesus or stopped following him at some point. Peter was no longer running his seafood business. Matthew was no longer working with the IRS. Simon was no longer going to his hit job meetings at the Assassin's Club, right? And just like you can't be married to two people at the same time, Jesus takes out his sword and he says, if you belong to me, you belong only to me. Choose this day and every day. Who will you serve? Because marriage means there's a leaving, and that's why parents cry at weddings, right? It's, it's a good thing. They know this is God's intention, but they also feel that leaving, the pain of the separation. So, don't be distressed when conflicts arise in your family because you stepped out to become one with Jesus. You have been separated. Even conflicts among people who believe the same Bible, agree to the same theology, go to the same denomination of church, they're going to arise, Why? Because the Holy Spirit is calling you to higher levels of intimacy with Him. And that means leaving other things behind. And those closest to you, they're going to challenge that. They're going to gossip. They might turn their back on you. They don't get it. They don't understand why are you leaving something that isn't bad, but it isn't Jesus. It isn't keeping you one with Him. So don't be upset. He's using his sword to separate, to call us out, to call us 
to be one with him. And that means we can't belong to anything else. The peace, also, the sword also brings peace. Now, before you start thinking, uh, I, I think he's joined some sort of Christian jihad group. You know, everyone get your swords. Let's bring peace to the earth. La, 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 la. No, let's go back to when Jesus was born. Every Christmas, we remember the words of the angels, right? Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But Jesus, the Prince of Peace, said he didn't come to bring peace. So what in the world is up with that? How does this make any sense? First, let's dig deeper than peace slogans and bumper stickers and sound bites. There is such a thing as an evil peace. There is such a thing as an evil peace. A slave has peace so long as he doesn't try to act free, right? Do what you're told. Don't leave. Don't step out of line. And we won't hurt you. You'll have peace, right? President Eisenhower said, if you want total security, go to prison, There you'll be fed and clothed and given medical care and so on. The only thing lacking is freedom. When we offer up no resistance to temptation or to evil, then yes, there is a cheap counterfeit peace. And I propose it is this fake peace that we settle for that corrodes our relationship, corrupts our character, and chokes our faith. So not all peace is good, and not all conflict is evil. Jesus is saying a necessary conflict has been sent to break up an evil peace. His sword of truth has come to reveal our hearts. And when Jesus says, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you, not as the world gives, he is identifying there is more than one kind of peace. He differentiates his true peace from the evil counterfeit peace. The only true and lasting peace comes from God's righteousness. But in order to receive real true peace, you must reject the false peace. And that choosing means conflict. Jesus said this conflict would rise up in our own families. He said we would find ourselves living with enemies. Is Jesus (gasps) anti-family? What does he mean, enemies of our own household? I can't tell you how many times I've seen this, you know, play out. Consider our East Indian brothers and sisters. When they become a Christian and they get baptized in water, many times they are rejected outright by their their Hindu and Sikh families. But it happens in American culture too. How many of you have a similar story? You've been separated from those that you love because you've chosen to live in the true peace that is Jesus. So the sword brings peace, but it also causes conflict. The sword of Jesus not only cuts between family members, it cuts in between what you want to do and what you need to do. The fact that sometimes there is a difference between what you want to do and what you should do, shows you your heart must be pierced by the sword of Christ. Just like Simeon said to Mary when she brought baby Jesus to the temple, a sword will pierce your heart. As God was working out salvation, 
Mary watched her adult son be beaten and humiliated and crucified publicly. And it broke her heart. But Jesus was saving her too. God's saving work in our lives necessarily means that he is going to bring us through very painful moments. And later we discover it was precisely because of the wounds that we experience the power of God's grace. And this issue of the heart is exactly why Jesus said to the Pharisees, what sorrow awaits you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, hypocrites, You're like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. Jesus directed his sharpest words at religious people who knew how to make a flawless appearance of religious devotion, but whose hearts... We're dead to God. External obedience is good, yes, but it is not the source of life. And this is a clear warning to good, faithful, church-going Christians. We can outwardly be devoted, yet have no spiritual life inside, no power, no joy, just death and decay. You know, you know all the right words to say. You know the Bible. Everyone at church is fooled by your act. Jesus is not fooled, and he is definitely not satisfied with empty, dead religion. So can I ask, why are you? Why are you satisfied with something that's dead? Aren't you exhausted? Aren't you tired of keeping up appearances and having nothing but old, dead stories of how things used to be between you and God? When you read all that he says to the Pharisees, you'll see him use that phrase, what sorrow awaits you over and over and over. And sometimes, you know, we think he's referring to that time in the future. They're going to be punished in hell. I think he used that word not just to describe eternal torment, but I think he sees that moment when the Pharisees enter heaven for judgment and they see God face to face. And what they see is what they could have had. All along, they could have had a loving, vibrant relationship with the Almighty. Everything could have changed, but instead, they find not only are they separated for eternity, but they find out they always were. They never had what they could have had. Mark chapter 10, as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him, and he said to him, one thing you lack, go, sell all your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, 
and come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened and and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. That rich young ruler, theologically, he believed all the same things as the disciples did. He believed all the same things that the prophets did. He believed the same things that Jesus did. He subscribed to all of those ideals. But when he claimed obedience to the law, Jesus didn't question that. But you see, his question was, how do I obtain eternal life? So even this obedient and orthodox young man knew that his religious actions did not result in spiritual life. In fact, he ran to Jesus. He got on his knees. He was painfully aware something's off. Something's not right between me and God even though he was doing the right things. You see, we look at this passage and we say, yeah, but see, he wasn't doing anything wrong. Think of all the jobs he created. Think of all the people that he lifted up out of poverty. And you're right. The wealth was not the problem. Just like family and friends. These are all gifts from God. The problem is, when we take a gift from God and we turn it into something to replace God, and give it priority over God. That's called idolatry. You see, Jesus knew what was in control of his heart. And Jesus knows whether he truly sits on the throne of your heart or not. And he will challenge each of us in this way. And that's why we must question everything, question our motives, examine ourselves, allow the sword of Christ to come and pierce our hearts, because the heart is not something that's immediately visible to everyone. Do you remember when you were a kid and your parents were bringing you to a fancy dinner, or maybe they were having some special guests over to the house, and and they pulled you aside, and what did they say? Don't, yeah, right? Behave yourself. What were they really saying? Don't embarrass me, (laughs) right? Religious people are the kids that go to the fancy dinner, and they know exactly which fork to use and exactly which spoon to use, exactly how the napkin goes, right? They know all the manners and rituals that make for polite company, but in their heart, they'd rather be a thousand miles away. They'd rather be alone. They'd rather be at the club. They'd rather be anywhere than where they are. Why? Because there's no relationship with Father. They're just going through the motions. Now imagine little orphan Annie comes into the fancy dinner. She has no manners. She has her mangy little dog with her, right? She's a little chaotic, but all she wants is to be with Daddy. She adores Daddy unquestioningly, right? You see the difference? Now, does that mean that knowing the right things to do have absolutely no value? Of course not. We should seek out how to live holy lives that are pleasing and righteous, but we need to clearly discern the difference between religion and relationship. Let your love for the Father inspire your growth in holiness. Be quick to identify when your heart has drifted. Don't be satisfied to just check the boxes because God isn't. And he's not worried about you embarrassing him when you fall down. He just wants our hearts. And he doesn't want some of it. He doesn't want most of your heart. He wants all of it. God knows when he's lost your heart. Be honest. 
and tell him, I don't love you the way that I used to, that I need to. I want to love you passionately again. Help me. Take away anything that's distracting me. Examine my heart. If anything has crept up on that throne besides you, then help me to see it as the enemy that it really is and remove it. So how do we do that? How do we use the sword? Now, this is going to get a little gruesome, but stick with me here. We're going to Exodus chapter 32. It says, so Moses stood at the entrance to the camp, and he said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him, and he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother, his friend, and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the people died. And then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. Here we see the brutal use of the sword. The Levites willingly separated themselves. Moses commanded, if you're for the Lord, stand over here, separate yourself. And they did. And once they did, he told them, go back through Israel, kill those in idolatry and disobedience to God. You remember what's happening here, right? Moses had been gone up on the mountain, and while the people got impatient, what did they do? They took the blessing of God, all that gold that he had given them, and they did what with it? They made an idol, an abomination to God. Now, here's what's happening. Think, imagine the Levites. These, these are their brothers. They suffered together in Egypt. They saw the miraculous hand of God deliver them together. They experienced God's provision. And now they had to make a terrible choice. I couldn't help reading that and thinking, God, you wanted those people dead. Why didn't you just do it yourself? Why make the Levites do this? And here's the truth. We are asked to work in partnership with the Holy Spirit by participating in justice. We learn things about God. We learn some things about ourselves. In justice, we see the true consequence of disobedience. That beautiful mask of sin is removed, and we see what's underneath. You see, sin is not a game. It's a serious matter. Your choices matter. And we are humbled by the life-altering power of God's justice. And I wonder if those Levites thought about that day every time they were tempted to put something before God. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to expose the places in our lives that are not in submission to Him. They don't belong to Him. And He hands you the sword, and He says, cut it out. You cut it out. Jesus didn't tell the rich young ruler to just leave his riches behind and follow him. No, he said, you go home and you get rid of it and then come back and follow me. Jesus also did not miraculously evaporate all of his wealth. You know, oh, you want eternal life? No problem. Poof, there it goes. There goes the problem. All done. Now follow me. No, we have a role to play here. God never made us to be sock puppets of his sovereignty. God wants to cooperate with humanity to accomplish his will. God wants his children to take on responsibility and ownership 
and participate in his plan. The members of Israel who were idolaters and had to be destroyed before God could take them into the promised land. And the same is true for us. There are new places that God wants to lead you. There's new territories that he wants to explore with you and conquer with you. There are new enemies to be defeated. But none of that begins until you face the enemy within. How many times have we prayed, Oh God, take away my desire to sin. Right? Oh, I'm the only one that ever prayed that. Okay, holy people. Come on now. How many of you, right? Take away my desire to sin. Clean out all my rebellion and selfishness. Clean out all my lust and anger and whatever, jealousy, whatever. All you want to do is have the surgeon, you know, do the job while you're under under anesthesia, and then you wake up and it's magically taken care of and you walk off, right? But that's not how it works. He will show you the parts that need to be cut away, and he will hand you his sword, but you have to kill it. You have to take it out to the trash and walk away. And when we do, there is blessing and reward, and you can receive what he promised you. And as a reward for the Levites' willingness to take on this tragic assignment, they were set apart for God. And Moses said, you have been set apart for Adonai today. You killed your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day because of your obedience. So let me ask you this. If you found out that you had cancer, how much of it would you want the doctor to cut out? Would you just be satisfied with like him taking out half of it? 80%. I mean, you know, they are your cells after all. It's your DNA. So it's a little out of control. Come on, let's not get extreme. No, if you have cancer, your body will not be in peace and you won't be satisfied unless and until it's all gone. It's completely removed. Why? Because those out of control cells will kill you if they're not removed. Maybe you're sitting here, you're thinking, what an overbearing God we have. He just wants to kill everything that doesn't belong to him. Right? But you see, You see, what he knows is those parts of you that don't belong to him, they're killing you. And they'll spread, and they will kill you. They're killing you right now. Only with radical surgery will the peace of heaven come and rest in your heart. Deuteronomy chapter 30. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. We must allow a painful cutting away in our hearts in order to experience true devotion to God, to enthrone Him as rightful King and Lord of all. And some of what is cut away, it's pure cancer. It's sin, it's evil, and obviously so. But sometimes the cutting away, like in circumcision, is just extra. It's just more. It's not blatantly evil. We must also cut away things in our lives, not because they're evil, but because they weigh us down and they distract us and they create a barrier to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Working with God to cut away anything that He wants results in passionate love for God and spiritual life 
And not just for us, but our kids. They're going to see this work going on in our lives, and they're going to benefit also. This is what happened to the Levites, the ones who stood with God and Moses against idolatry. That blessing wasn't just for them. It was for every Levite who would ever come and walk onto history for all time afterwards. Born into a priesthood, devoted to the service of God from birth, from generation to generation. Allow the sword of Christ to pierce your heart and your kids. They're going to benefit too. In 1984, a woman brought her little girl, her little five-year-old, into McDonald's. It was here in California. And while they were in line, a man named James Huberty walked in with an Uzi, semi-automatic machine gun, and he started killing people in McDonald's. Maybe you remember the story. Little boys were gunned down as they tried to get away on their bicycles. People were killed as they huddled in fear under the tables. And this mom, in her panic, she instinctively started running, and the next thing she knows, she's outside next to the big trash bin, and she realizes her little five-year-old girl is not with her. And she turns around, and she looks, and she sees through the glass siding that her little girl is standing next to the trash can inside of McDonald's, you know, with the, the little trays stacked up next to it. And she has a look of total panic and fear on her face. And everything in that little girl wanted to run to her mommy, and mommy knew that, but she saw the killer walking across McDonald's towards her little girl. So she lifted up her hands as if to say, stop, don't run. And then she slowly lowered her hands to motion to the little girl to squat down behind that trash can. And against all of her instincts, that little girl obeyed her mommy's instruction. And she squatted down behind the trash can. And that killer walked up to that can he didn't see the little girl and he turned and he walked away and as soon as she had a chance that little girl ran as fast as she could outside of McDonald's and into the arms of her mommy and this is the lesson of the Levites obedience saved her life and that's the principle rebellion leads to death obedience to life and blessing What has God asked you to cut out of your life that you've only half-heartedly addressed? What blessings has God put in your life that you've turned into an idol? We need to examine ourselves and hunt out the parts that don't belong to him and work with the Holy Spirit to cut them out. It's painful. I get it. It's difficult. It's hard. It hurts. But there's good news. Hebrews chapter 4. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, but he was without sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. We receive his mercy where and when we need it most, and that's good news. So let me ask you a question. How much of God's mercy do you want? You want want a little bit, or do you want all of it? Or would you like to hang on to some of that cancer for a little while? Because there is not room for both. Today, Jesus is picking up his sword and saying, choose today, who will you serve? Choose this every day. And we must choose. 
and we must choose today. So let's stand together and everyone close their eyes in the presence of God in his house.